So if, uh, if anyone here doesn't uh, know who I am or why I'm up here, my name's Will. Uh, I'm not one of the pastors. <laughs> um, so I, I've been involved in our cross-current ministry for high school and middle school students here at Grace for the last several years, and I had some teaching opportunities there, and I think the pastoral team didn't think that was hard enough, so they invited me to, to come up here. Um, no, I, 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 love, I love talking about um, God's word, so I'm excited to be here. Um, before we get started, today is my son's fourth birthday. Um, his name's Ander. Many of you probably know who he is, and thank you for taking care of him, Grace Kids. He wasn't feeling well, so he couldn't be here today, but I, he should be watching the live stream. I'm going to pick this camera. Ander, happy birthday. I love you, buddy. I'll see you when I get home, okay? All right, <clears throat> now we'll jump in. All right, so uh, many of you in this room are parents, um, and you probably remember, or you should remember, the first time you found out uh, that you were pregnant. Ashley and I were out in, uh, in Arizona uh, visiting some of her family and doing some, doing some sightseeing, and so we flew out there, and some, uh, there were some odd things that she was feeling, she felt off. Um, while we were there, and as we were kind of running through the, it wasn't anything serious, but it was like, okay, something's going on. And as we're running through the possibilities, we're like, well, I guess it's possible that she could be pregnant. Um, but that was kind of like, you know, well, if she's not feeling well after X number of days, we'll get the, we'll buy the test and, and take it. So after X number of days, we'd just gone to Sedona and had a whole long day there. It's beautiful out there, by the way. We were exhausted, we come home, she still wasn't feeling right, not home, to the hotel, still wasn't feeling right, so she bought the pregnancy test, um, get back to the hotel, and she takes it, and it came back positive. I didn't know that, I was blissfully unaware in the other room, but she was so shocked that, you know, this was like a remote possibility in her mind, and it came back positive. She took it again, you know, in the, I still had no idea. When, she finally was like persuaded enough that that did indeed say positive. She came out of the bathroom with like the biggest look of shock in her face that I have. She was just like, and <laughs> she couldn't have surprised me if she wouldn't if she wanted to. It was just written all over her face. She she just couldn't believe it. So at that moment, everything we perceived about our future changed. Like we were exhausted, like we had had a really long day, but like the adrenaline just started running and we just talked for hours after that about what are we gonna do next? Like what's our living situation gonna be? When are we gonna start telling people? What, is it gonna be a boy or a girl? Like what, we had a, a running list of names and we we're like, are these good enough? Like which ones, which ones should we choose? And trying to spitball new ones and just kind of like letting the reality wash over us that suddenly because we found out we're pregnant, everything is different. Because finding out you're pregnant doesn't just mean you're pregnant. It means you're gonna be in for a lot less sleep. <laughs> it means you're gonna be changing lots of diapers. It means you're gonna be trying to block out more crying and screaming than you ever thought possible to come out of a tiny human being. And it means your heart is gonna start caring for someone more than you ever realized 
you could. So the news you're pregnant has huge implications. <clears throat> so there, there are pieces of information that you'll get in life, whether positive or negative, that change everything. News that gives you a glimpse into a totally different future than you would, you'd imagine for yourself. Now, we, we planned on getting pregnant eventually. Like, that wasn't like, but we didn't plan on it then. That changed everything from then on. But for you, you might get offered that job that you never thought in a million years you would get. And suddenly the, oh, if only we could afford this, turns into, oh, we can afford that. Like, I can pay for my kid's college now, or I can buy, replace our old car, or we can fix the house finally, because the news you've been offered the job changes everything about your future. So, on the negative side, you might receive a diagnosis that pretends a future that you never would have hoped for. And speaking of pregnancy, it might be a difficult conversation with your doctor about infertility. And suddenly, news that you never wanted to receive, you've received. And everything you perceived about your future is different, and you have to grapple with it. News that causes you to self-evaluate and make really hard decisions about what's most important. So today's passage is about God breaking into someone's life and giving them this kind of news. So we're in the middle of a series on the book of Daniel, and we've been learning about the sovereignty, sovereignty of God over all things, that despite our circumstance, despite being in hostile Babylon, God is still in control. God is still watching over his people. That though the empires and emperors of the day are powerful and imposing, God is more powerful still. That we can be faithful in Babylon because God is faithful to us in Babylon. And his majesty and glory will not be overshadowed. <clears throat> Today we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 5, the story of the writing on the wall where God delivers life-changing news to King Belshazzar. And the implications of this news are so important that they're still relevant to us today. And we'll talk about that. Today we're going to grapple with the news about God's power and God's judgment. Our big idea from the passage is that God's power is unrivaled and God's judgment is just. So we're going to read the chapter, or most of it. It's a little long. Bear with me. And then we're going to pray, and then we'll dig in. So let's read. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, well, commanded that they be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. 
Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. We're going to skip a few verses. At, right after this, <clears throat> the queen comes in to Belshazzar, tells him about Daniel, who interpreted for dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar sends for Daniel and offers him the same reward of being clothed in riches and being given the third position in the kingdom. Verse 17. <clears throat> then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven." until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence was the hand sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So let's pray. 
Father, we need you. We ask that you would open your word to us. Father, that the events in this passage would wash over us, that we would understand your power and your judgment and respond correctly. Fill us with your spirit. We're trusting you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a couple things before we jump in. First, if you're wondering why we're talking about Belshazzar instead of Nebuchadnezzar, who was in the first four chapters, that's a great question. So this is actually, the events of this passage are about 22 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Belshazzar is the fifth king after Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He's technically the king regent. His father is out on extended leave, and Belshazzar is currently the acting king in his place. Uh, The second thing, this is more of a caveat, this message is not intended to be the final word on Daniel 5. So there's a bunch of different things that you could focus on from this passage that we're not really going to get into. So you could look at this passage from the lens of prophetic fulfillment, that there were prophecies of this event from years before, and what are the implications of that, and how does this passage fit into the broader uh, narrative of God's redemption of his people? You could talk about the geopolitical implications of Babylon falling to the Medes, or you could talk about what it means, the implications of Daniel being a faithful believer all these years through various different kings. Um, I want to go deep on just a couple aspects of this passage. So we don't, it's a long passage. We can't, we don't really have room or time to go wide. So if you're wondering, if you're sitting there wondering, well, why isn't he talking about this? That's why. Um, If we had another sermon on uh, Daniel 5, we'd cover that, but we don't. We just have this one. So Um, we have two main points that we're going to be grappling with from this passage. God's power is unrivaled. God's judgment is just. So first, God's power is unrivaled. Now, our modern sensibilities want us to dismiss this as a fanciful tale. This is just an ancient writer trying to be cute and take us for simpletons. So we kind of want to balk at taking this too literally because we're educated people, you know? We, we know how the world works. We generally understand science. We've been around the block. So Daniel, stop trying to treat us like uneducated readers. We know this kind of stuff doesn't happen. This story might have worked on the people of the time but we won't fall for it. We're smarter than that. That's kind of the way, like our natural inclination to a passage like this. But if you're paying attention to the text, you see that this is not presented to be a normal occurrence. Ethereal hands don't just appear out of nothing and start writing prophecies on the wall. We're not intended to just roll with this as being a thing that happens from time to time. Oh yeah, there's another hand writing on the wall. Belshazzar is literally going pale and wetting himself because this is happening in front of him. So you see that in verse 6. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. This isn't presented as a run-of-the-mill experience because this should not and could not have happened. It's impossible. And yet it did. 
That's how we're supposed to take this story. We're supposed to take it the same way Belshazzar is taking, taking it. You can cling to your modern sensibilities until the writing is on the wall. What do you do once the hand starts writing? Do you ignore it? Explain it, explain it away? Try to cover it up? Or do you stand in fear of the one who wrote it? Now, Belshazzar obviously doesn't have modern sensibilities, but he had his own established worldview. He lived within, unlike us, a polytheistic framework. And he viewed himself and his nation as, a highly, as highly favored by his gods. So he was in the middle of worshiping their icons, their idols, what he and others considered to be physical representations of the cosmological beings that ruled everything. He believed strongly in the supernatural. He believed strongly in their intervention on his behalf, on their superiority over all others. He was in the middle of worshiping his gods to gloat over the God of the Jews because he sincerely thought his gods were greater and he still had no category for what he was seeing. He was absolutely terrified. So there's no hiding behind your worldview when the writing's on the wall. So maybe you could think, okay, well, wait a second. But the precision of the prophecy, like, come on. Daniel had to have gotten in league with the Medes and Persians. He had to have you know, organized this whole coup. He says, all right, guys, we're going to do it tonight. I'm going to have this writing put on the wall. You guys are going to come in late. I'm going to, you know, it's going to be, nobody's going to understand what it says. They're going to call me in. I'm going to interpret it. Oh, yeah, the, your, you know, your kingdom's going to fall. And boom, you guys go in. And, you know, there we go. And you could, like, maybe, you know, work that, you know, in there. But you still run into the problem of the heavenly hand. It's not like the party started and then Daniel accidentally, you know, comes into the room and bumps something and a curtain falls and, oh my gosh, there's a writing on the wall. This was written in front of everyone by a disembodied hand that appeared out of nowhere. So, and you couldn't even do that convincingly today. Like if I tried to rig something up and a hand appeared and we started writing into the wall, none of you would... You know, if, if I was doing it, you wouldn't believe it. And today, we would have something maybe approximating the technology that could do it. But if, if we couldn't do it today convincingly, how could you do it in front of a 1,000 people back then? The writing on the wall validates itself because it was impossible. And though it breaks every semblance of sense, if God is who he says he is, the impossible can be possible. With the writing on the wall, this chapter and this whole book are shouting to us the power of God. In verse 23, later on, Daniel says to Belshazzar, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. The God in whose hand 
is your very breath. Now, you may remember Matthew 4, um, when Jesus is fasting for 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him and tells him to turn stones into bread. And Jesus' response to Satan is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we commonly interpret that to mean something like, we don't live just because we eat bread, we, because we feast on the word of God or because we obey the word of God. But Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8. And if you go back to that passage, you see something a little bit different. So let's read Deuteronomy 8. This is, this is Moses speaking to Israel after they've gone through the desert, the wilderness coming out of Egypt. This is what he says. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that, the man, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So when you hear it in that context, you start to realize that what he means is that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives because God says he lives. That you're alive because the words proceeding from the mouth of God say you're alive. Oh, the Israelites are wandering through the desert and they don't have any food. God will speak into existence food that no one has ever seen before just to sustain them. Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being thrown into the fiery furnace. God will make it so that when they come out the other side, you won't even smell, smell smoke on them. God says you're alive because you're alive because God says you're alive. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Jesus, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There are stars in the sky today because God says there are. And you're alive and here today because God says you are. If you have no food to eat and God says you'll live, you'll live. If you have all the food in the world to eat but God says you won't live, you won't live. Nations rise, nations fall because God said so. The writing on the wall, the impossible made possible, represents the power of God. It's what terrifies Belshazzar at the feast. He's in the presence of the all-powerful, the finite in the presence of the infinite, witnessing the impossible being carved into the palace wall. This isn't something you can ignore. This isn't something you cover up. You don't just start the party back up after this. You don't just turn the music back on and go searching for more hors d'oeuvres. The unrivaled power of God dropped like a bomb into his life, and he needed to know what it meant. <clears throat> so we got all the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, and he offered them... 
I don't, I don't understand his reasoning. You're, you're trying to get an interpretation and then you offer them like the third position of the ruler. This is like a layup. Nobody understands what's written on there. Like anybody could have said, this is the interpretation. I'm the third ruler in the kingdom. Nobody does. Nobody attempts an interpretation. Or if they did, they, they weren't confident enough to say, oh, I've got it. Pick me. This was such a dramatic expression of divine power that they knew this wasn't something they could just make up. So if you're an astrologer, sure you can say with confidence, the, the way the stars are aligned are telling us this is gonna happen. But you can do that because the star is not gonna show up in your living room and tell you otherwise. But this is different. Something this real and powerful demanded a real interpretation, which left the astrologers out and brought Daniel in. Which brings us to our second point, is they're still trying to grapple with the unrivaled power of God and what it means. Daniel comes in to talk about the just judgment of God. And this is perhaps the most well-known part of the story the writing on the wall is a sign of judgment, a sign of the end. And as we look at this passage, we realize this isn't just God rebuking Belshazzar and telling him to change his ways. This is final judgment. He's not trying to restore Belshazzar. He's telling him it's over. So with the lesson of chapter four, which we heard last week, is that God always responds to the humbled, humble and the humbled the lesson of chapter five is that the opportunity to humble yourself is not open forever. There is a defin definite end to your opportunity for repentance, which means God's judgment to Belshazzar is relevant to us today. We're not watching just someone else's problem. We're watching something that all of us will have to face. The time when it's all laid bare, it's just us and God, and he passes judgment. So when you're in a work meeting and you realize, oh wait a second, this just took a turn and what we're talking about has direct impact on my workload, you start to sit up a little bit and like ask a lot of qualifying questions. Because you want to make sure that the decision that's made at work is fair, that you're not getting the short, of the, the short end of the stick. You want to make sure that this is all well thought through. We're, kind of do the, kind of do, yeah, we're going to kind of do the same thing here, because the process by which God judges Belshazzar has massive implications for us. And as we read the passage carefully in the context of the book, I think an important question rises. Why does God condemn Belshazzar and not Nebuchadnezzar? Now you could say, well, you know, Belshazzar's horrible actions at the feast, or what, clearly that's the reason, you know. Flaunting the holy vessels of God's temple and using them for a drinking party with his buddies, wives, and con concubines. That 
flying in the face of the glory of God. But was that more horrible than Nebuchadnezzar stealing those vessels from the temple to begin with? Or was it more horrible than Nebuchadnezzar destroying the temple and Jerusalem? Why give Nebuchadnezzar chance after chance to repent and acknowledge the living God and even actively humble him into repentance, but not Belshazzar? Doesn't necessarily seem fair. We're all counting on the fact that God is good, that the one who judges all things is right, that his judgments are true and accurate, that he's fair. What if he's not fair? What if his judgments aren't right? What if he's been careless with this punishment? What if he let a horrible tyrant off the hook and he's letting his anger out on a lesser king? So we have one big question related to God's judgment. Why does God condemn Belshazzar and not Nebuchadnezzar? By all appearances, we have two equally evil men maybe leaning more towards Nebuchadnezzar in the evil department. And one of them is saved and one of them is condemned. Why? So I think the text has two answers to this question. <clears throat> First, God's judgment is deserved by everyone. We see this in verse 27, where we see this implied through verse 27. The middle interpretation of the writing on the wall, we'll read it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The CSB tr translates it, you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. This is God telling a man while he's still alive, I've weighed your entire being, your whole life, and it's not good enough. Now, we know Belshazzar wasn't condemned instead of Nebuchadnezzar solely because of his actions. Because as we noted before, even though Belshazzar was making a mockery of the living God, it's not like Nebuchadnezzar didn't do the same thing. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar was stealing the vessels from the temple with a humble heart? Do you think he, had a, he was destroying Jerusalem and the temple with a heart of humility towards God? Like, no, like, let's... It's not, Nebuchadnezzar didn't like earn his way into this. He was doing, clearly doing the same things that Belshazzar himself was found doing. Belshazzar was found wanting, deficient, but so was Nebuchadnezzar. They're both sinners. So it's not that Belshazzar deserved it more because they both deserved it. They should have, both should have been condemned. And so should you. And so should I. So our sins may be different in degree from these men, but they're not different in kind. We're not better than them. We're just not as extreme as them. We're more subtle, more domesticated in our defiance against God. But when weighed in the balance, we're no less found wanting. Romans 3 9 through 12. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is love, and our hearts burn with hatred. God is merciful, and our hearts bend to injustice. God is faithful, and our hearts are pervaded with selfishness. When God is speaking to Belshazzar here, he's speaking to all of us. The expectation then is that everyone perishes. Everyone is condemned. That the fair thing to do would have been to condemn both Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. So the thing that we originally thought was unfair when we brought up the question actually wasn't unfair. Belshazzar should have been condemned because of his sin before God. That was right. The thing that now appears to unfair is that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't condemned. Why should he be spared the wrath of God? Why can his sins be overlooked, but Belshazzar's can't? Why can Nebuchadnezzar be saved? Which leads us to the second answer from this text. God's judgment hinges on our response to him. We've just seen that everyone here is in the same boat. We're all deserving of condemnation. All of us are sinners. All of us at root prefer our idols over the living God. All of us pursue our pleasure or our success or our comfort over pursuing the God who holds our very breath in his hands. Our natural response to God is a response of rejection. Which means it's over for us. If God is going to judge everyone and we right, rightfully deserve it, we're done. But in this passage, we see a glimmer of hope. So let's look at verses 20, 24. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. Daniel is summarizing the events of chapter four, which we heard last week. God afflicted Nebuchadnezzar until he humbled himself and glorified God as the only God, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's heart was changed. His response to God went from complete rejection to total acceptance. Daniel says in verse 22 that Belshazzar knew this, and Belshazzar, Belshazzar would have known this. Because Nebuchadnezzar had these events written down and distributed throughout the entire known world. If you remember in chapter 4, it was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. He didn't keep this as a secret. Everyone knew 
that the king of Babylon now worshipped the God of Israel. So now in the next section we see the contrast for Belshazzar. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his prisons the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. The reason Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar is being condemned and Nebuchadnezzar isn't is because Belshazzar was confronted with God and rejected him. But Nebuchadnezzar was confronted with God but accepted him. Do you see that? You knew this, but you haven't humbled your heart. His actions and the feast were an outworking of a heart that rejected God. And that rejection of God was what condemned Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was spared not because he did better things than Belshazzar or because God is unjust, but because his heart was changed towards God. And you see this all over the Bible. So if you remember the Ninevites, Jonah preached to them a message of repentance. The Ninevites took human cruelty to another level and therefore Jonah would rather have done anything else than preach a message of repentance to them. He preached it to them and they actually listened. They went from rejecting God to accepting God. The Apostle Paul, Jesus revealed himself to Paul and Paul went from persecuting the church to building the church. The thief on the cross, presented with the glory of Jesus, he believed and went from condemned to judgment to welcomed into paradise. We see this in John 3, starting in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The Ninevites loved the darkness, but when they came into contact with the living God, They started to love the light. Nebuchadnezzar was saved because he turned from the darkness and walked into the light. And God is still just when this happens. He's just when you're condemned for your sins because you deserve it. But God is still just when you are saved 
because he suffers the condemnation that you deserve. Means Jesus suffered for Nebuchadnezzar's sins. Jesus was held accountable for the destruction of the temple. Jesus was held accountable for the people Nebuchadnezzar killed and the nations Nebuchadnezzar cruelly overthrew. God is just to save because of Jesus. But the opportunity is not open forever. Belshazzar knew everything there is to know about Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew everything that Nebuchadnezzar shared about God. He knew that God has the power to humble the greatest of men. He knew that God hates evil and loves righteousness. He knew that the God of Israel is the only God, the Most High, but he rejected what he knew. He loved the darkness rather than the light. He preferred his gods made from human hands. He thought he had forever to do his thing, but now the writing's on the wall. And it's all over for Belshazzar. Worship team, you can come up. God's judgment is just. Now, maybe you're feeling in the same boat as Belshazzar where you know enough but you know your heart is with something else. And maybe you know that's not good, but you don't know what else to do, and you're feeling helpless, feeling stuck in your own sinfulness, stuck in the hardness of your heart, stuck and unable to move closer to God. Know that the God who wrote condemnation on the wall also wrote himself into history to bear condemnation. That the God who punishes the sinner also intervenes to save sinners by taking their punishment. God delivered news of condemnation to Belshazzar, but before that, he delivered news of salvation through Nebuchadnezzar. God has news of condemnation for you. His judgment won't delay forever, but God wants to save. 
He sent Jesus to save. Jesus, his name means God saves. And he saves his enemies. So do you feel opposed to God? Do you feel stuck in sin? Do you feel a million miles away from the love of God? He came for you. The power of God is unrivaled, meaning he can do whatever he wants, and he wants to save. The judgment of God is just, meaning he can condemn everyone. But he chose a path where he maintains justice and saves those who believe. Romans 3.23, we read this earlier, but I want us to see the next verse and what it's saying. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are eligible for salvation through Jesus. If you're a sinner, that means you qualify. So come to Jesus. In him is peace. In him is rest. In him is hope. In him is joy. In him is comfort. In him is salvation. The power of God for salvation is in him. So come to Jesus and be saved. <laughs>